When you come to Acts chapter 10, if you've been reading since the book of Genesis, the entire Bible has been the story of Israel, has it not? God's chosen people. From their election in Abraham to the going into the promised land, the successes and the failures, the exile, getting even into the New Testament, and it's the Jewish Israelite Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, that we're reading about. He even told his disciples, do not go outside of the bounds of Israel. Don't go to Samaria. Don't go to the Gentiles. Stay here. And at that point, the Jews have separated themselves sharply from the rest of the nations. They're no longer just one among many nations. They have turned inward. And even in the church, they've been content to reach Israel only so far. Have you noticed that? Started out in Jerusalem, and then we had that whole thing with the Hellenists. Remember, there was a bit of a conflict there, because these guys were Jews, but they didn't follow Hebrew culture. They had adopted Greek culture, and some people weren't too happy about that, but the Lord worked that over. And then you had Philip going to Samaria. Now we're bringing in the Samaritans, and this would have stretched the church a little bit, because this is technically Israel, but it's kind of not. You remember that study. They were a mixed race. There was also a mixed religion going on there. But the Lord saw fit to reach out to them. Then you had Philip going to people like the Ethiopian eunuch who was seeking after the Lord and trying to become a Jew. He had gone as far as he could. So you could say proselytes. We read about, I believe it was Nicanor who was the proselyte who had become a Jew, even though he was not born one. And you had pretty much filled the promised land with the gospel. But you remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, and all Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then where? To the ends of the earth. This is where this begins. Because in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, God had said this about the Messiah that he was going to send. He said, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's too light a thing just to deal with Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That word for nations in Hebrew is goyim. Jews still use that word to this day to refer to Gentiles. They call, call us goyim. Or if they're making fun of you a lot of times, they'll call you a goy because that's the Hebrew word for nation. It's where the word Gentiles comes from. In Greek, you have the word ethne, which is where the word ethnic comes from, and it's translated Gentiles to other nations. So he says, you're going to be a light to the Gentiles and bring them, he says, my salvation in Isaiah 49.6. You want a trip? You know what that word for salvation is in Hebrew? Yeshua. Do you know what that word is? That was Jesus' name. He was named Yeshua, which was the Aramaic or the Hebrew word for salvation. So it's really cool when you know what the Messiah's name would be because he kind of says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation, my Yeshua, my son Jesus may reach to the end of the earth. And he says, as glorious as the redemption of Israel is, and you read it about it in Zechariah and Revelation and all these places, it's going to be glorious. But the Lord says, ah, that's too light a thing. I'm going to have you go to the whole world. And today, through the apostle Peter, God is going to do something big. This is not too light a thing. This is monumental. This is one of the key chapters in the entire Bible, you guys. This is a turning point from Genesis to now. It has been one way. After this chapter, it's going to be totally different. So let's read chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, and let's see what the word has to say. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, 
a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. We are introduced here to a man named Cornelius in the city of Caesarea. And he was a centurion. He was a Roman. He was a Gentile. And by the end of this story, he's going to be the first Gentile convert to Christianity. Pretty special, isn't it? He's in Caesarea. This was 30 miles north of Joppa. Do you remember when Philip was down in Gaza with the Ethiopian eunuch? The spirit brought him to Azotus, which is former Ashdod, and he went up the coast into Lydda and Joppa and stopped in Caesarea. And then Peter had come behind him. Last week he went to Lydda and he healed Aeneas. He went to Joppa and he raised Tabitha from the dead. 30 miles north of that is Caesarea. You can see how Philip was that trailblazer. And it was a Roman hub in the area. Caesarea used to be called something else. It was not a Roman city. But when Rome occupied Israel, they took this little town on the coast and they made it into one of their biggest cities. They made an artificial harbor, which you can go see to this day. It had an amphitheater like the Colosseum in Rome. It had a temple to Caesar. It had a racetrack for horses and chariots. Think of the movie Ben-Hur. They had one of those in Caesarea. And this is... A city where people that were transferred out of Rome and had to go down into the backwater of Judea and Samaria and Galilee, they could go to Caesarea and feel like they were home for a little bit. This was a Gentile city in the Promised Land. And he was a centurion, which meant he was in command of 100 men. You can hear that in the word, right? Century, centurion. He was over 100 men. Six centurions, or centuries they were called, so 600 men would have made what they called a cohort, or a regiment might be a word that we use. And then 10 cohorts would have made what was called a legion. So he's an officer, so to speak, but he's not like a general. And centurions were known not only in the Bible, for example, in Luke chapter 7, the centurion that didn't even need Jesus to come into his house to heal his servant. You remember that guy? And Jesus said, I haven't even seen faith like this in Israel. But even in Roman history, centurions were known for their integrity because they weren't like the generals who ruled over the legions who got there because of some political connection they had. They were like NCOs. They were non-commissioned officers that worked their way up through the ranks and earned their spot as a leader of men. So that's why this was a special category of people, and Cornelius is no exception. And we see that he feared the Lord. He revered the God of the Jews, but he had not converted. So he was not like the Ethiopian eunuch or one of the seven who was a proselyte. He was an outsider. He had not been circumcised. He had not converted. Perhaps he attended the synagogue, but that seems unlikely if he had not been circumcised. But we see he observed almsgiving. He gave financially to the Jewish people, and he observed the hours of prayer. And you remember, the Lord was able to calm Ananias' conscience about going to see Saul of Tarsus by saying, 
He's praying. It's okay. We got this. And this is what he was doing. He was praying. So one day at 3 p.m., that's the ninth hour, is 3 p.m., he has a vision of an angel who commends him for his prayer and for his giving. It's come up like an offering before the Lord, right? He tells him to send for a man named Peter who is staying in Joppa. Cornelius is the, the last in a long line of people in the Bible. There are several notable examples who were not Jews but knew the Lord. And you have some variation there. You had some of them that knew the Lord and worshipped the Lord, like Melchizedek in the Old Testament. You had men that knew the Lord and came around to worship the Lord, men like Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law. You had men that knew the Lord but didn't worship the Lord, like Balaam, who saw the Lord as another God he could call upon to help with his fortune-telling startup. You had the Magi that came to worship Jesus when he was born. They were not Jews, but they knew the Lord. That's probably leftovers from when Daniel had been in Babylon and had left the tradition behind that there was a God who answered dreams, and that was the Lord. And it's interesting to see people like this, and there are others. Naaman the Syrian could maybe be in that category. But they were not Jews, but they knew the Lord. And you say to yourself, how is that possible? Because remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. People who seek God the best way they know how will be introduced to Jesus in God's sovereignty. We ask that question, we say, well, what if somebody never has a chance to hear the gospel? First of all, that should motivate you to get out there and share the gospel. But second of all, don't you trust the Lord? Isn't God sovereign enough? Do we see the Lord working through dreams and visions to bring people to salvation? You don't think God could do that with somebody trapped in some jungle somewhere? Paul is going to explain in Acts chapter 17 that before Christ came, the Lord was patient and gracious with these nations that did not have the knowledge of the Lord. And then Paul says, but now he commands everyone to repent, and that's why he sent the church out. People who seek God in sincerity will always find him, but it's got to be sincere. You know people that, I'm a seeker, and that's the label they slap on their life to never make a decision about spiritual things. But men like, I love the example of Keith Green, who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, but really wanted to know God. And if you read his biography, he cycled through just about every religion you could think of. He even invented his own religion at one point, which mostly involved getting high and then reading some books and talking about it. Very convenient religion, isn't it? But he, you read his journals and he's saying, I've got to find what's true. And once I find it, I'm never letting go. And once he found Jesus, he became a radical Christian, radical believer. One of those bull in a china shop kind of believers. Like, you're messing everything up, Keith. He's like, I don't care. I found God after years of looking for him. And this is Cornelius. He had found the true God. And he was seeking him. And the Lord found him. So he says, go talk to Peter. He'll, he'll give you the rest of the details. So he gets his servants. He sends them to Joppa. Imagine the anticipation he would have had. I wonder what it was that made him not convert to Judaism. Maybe he saw through the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. If you're a, a leader of men, especially if you're a seasoned soldier and you're used to dealing with all kinds of personality, dealing with those Pharisees and, and Caiaphas and those guys, that must have just made him sick. He knew, even Pilate, right? He knew they were full of jealousy. He knew their game and he's like, why would I want to be part of that? I think they're right, but this part isn't right. And the Lord came in and met him in his seeking. We're going to jump back to where Peter is and see his half of the story. Verse 9. 
The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, remember it's a 30-mile journey, so it would have taken about a full day to get there, and they're leaving after the, the ninth hour, so it probably would have been the next day. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour, that's noon, to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Talk about that in a minute. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. Odd thing to say. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. This is a wild story, isn't it? We jump to Peter. We remember in chapter 9, verse 43, after he raised Tabitha from the dead, they implored him to stay in Joppa for a while, and he stayed with Simon the Tanner. And this is funny in a way to me, especially since we know so much about Peter's personality. A tanner is somebody that works with animal skins to make leather. That would have been an unclean occupation for a Jew especially for an apostle, the apostle to the Jews, he is called, staying with a tanner. The smell would have not been great. Maybe that's why Peter went up on top of the roof to pray during lunchtime. But I, you can see how the Lord has stretched the church and brought them just about to the breaking point where they're even willing to go to Jews who are living unclean lives that are not following the law. Peter probably thought himself rather tolerant, and that could be fair. But the Lord is about to rock his world, let me tell you. I love that that irony that we see here. Well, he goes up on the roof and begins to pray, and there he falls into a trance. This is the Greek word ecstasis. It's where we get the word ecstasy, or you talk about an ecstatic experience. It comes from the word that means to displace something. So an ecstasis would have been a displacement of the mind. We might use the word out-of-body experience to describe that. And I know that makes some of you uncomfortable, but it is a biblical phenomenon. And everybody got real quiet. Did you hear that? <laughs> what does it say, though? It says he fell into a trance. And he sees this vision of the sheet being lowered down full of all the things that Jews were not supposed to eat. The big sheet full of non-kosher food. And he says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Have lunch. If you're hungry, let's have a barbecue, Peter. Let's have some gator tail. Let's have bacon for the first time, Peter. It's going to blow your mind. It's awesome. <laughs> And it's interesting, that word for kill there is the Greek word thuson, which usually, when it, when it says thuson to kill, means kill as if for a sacrifice. So offer these unclean animals as a sacrifice and then eat the meat. And Peter is horrified. Because the law forbade the Jews from sacrificing or eating non-kosher animals like this. Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek king that ruled over the, the Jews in between Malachi and Matthew, the thing that finally tipped the Jews over the edge to get him out of there, he sacrificed a pig in the holy place. And here, the Lord lowers Peter a bag full of pigs and reptiles and buzzards and everything else, and he says, hey, Peter, sacrifice this to me and then eat it. No way, Lord. So you've got to give Peter a little, bit of, a little bit of grace on this one. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 25, had told the Jews, You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird, or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. 
You all have read this. This is the part in your annual Bible reading that you have to push through if you really want to finish reading the whole thing. He runs through the list of the foods they can and cannot eat. Pretty much it boiled down to you can eat things that are safe to eat in the desert that you can't cook very well. And we know that now scientifically. Don't eat the pigs because it takes a lot more to cook the, the bacteria and the germs out of a pig. But the Lord doesn't explain that to them. He says, don't eat it. It's not clean. He said, anything that divides the hoof and chews the cud. So cows were fine, right? And he said, any bird that has like claws and talons, don't eat that. Because eagles and buzzards and things like that, they eat carrion. You don't need to be eating that. And don't eat, it says, any creeping thing. Because <laughs> if it creeps on the ground, don't eat it. Don't eat bats. Don't eat snakes. Don't eat bugs and beetles like Hakuna Matata from the Lion King. Don't eat that stuff. It's not good for you. And what these were for, as we have seen, was to keep them clean. Most of the laws in the Old Testament, what does it say? These things are not clean. And we can run into the same problem that the Jews did. They took that word clean and they added all this extra meaning to it where it no longer meant clean. Now it meant wrong, sinful. Is it a sin on its face to eat a pig? I sure hope not. But it was not clean for them. And what had happened over time, the, the Israelites had attached morality to these laws. Back in Mark chapter 7, do you remember this? Jesus ran into that whole spiel. He said, it is not what goes into a person that defiles him, but what comes out of a person. And Jesus actually gets kind of humorous and sarcastic and gross when he says, you eat something, it goes into your belly, and it comes out the other end. It is expelled. So it, it starts out and it ends out. So why are you worried about it? You should be more worried about what comes out of your heart. And it says in Mark 7, 19, that by this teaching, Jesus declared all foods clean. Maybe Peter had spiritualized that message. Now, we know he doesn't actually mean that all foods are clean. Oh, so dangerous when we start saying things like that. Whenever you say it can't actually mean what it says, you are on very shaky ground. Maybe he had misunderstood it. Maybe he had just kind of like, I don't really get that one. So we're just not going to worry about it for now. But he's told three times not to call something common that God has decided to declare clean. The Lord said, I, I declared these animals unclean. I'm declaring them clean now. What's the point? You, I'm about to send you to these Gentiles. And I have decided to call them clean. So don't you dare bring all that nonsense with you into Cornelius' house. But Peter doesn't get that yet. So we get into verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. This is very respectful. You're not going into a Jew's house. We're Gentiles. We're going to stay out here. And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, comma, quotation marks, the spirit is a person. He has lines. He speaks. Said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Big step for Peter. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. I love that. Peter brings back up. But uh, it's actually lucky he did. We're going to see in chapter 11, not today, but next week. So they arrive at Simon's house. Peter's on the roof. He's had this vision, and he's trying to figure out what it means. Little note there, sometimes God will tell you things, and you don't know what they mean right away. 
You ponder them in your heart like Mary did until the moment comes and you are ready for it. And in Peter's case, that moment came very soon. The Lord told him, do not call common what I have called clean. What could that possibly mean? Peter, someone's looking for you. Yeah, and then the Holy Spirit says to him, Peter, go down. I've sent you some people. Go with them. He says to go without hesitation. That word, it's not actually hesitation. The word there is diacrino. It means judgment. He's saying, Peter, do not evaluate this situation. Just go. Isn't that something? The Holy Spirit tells him, Peter, we do not have time to get all Peter on this one. You've got to go right away. I've already told you that's good enough for you, Peter. Okay, well, let's see your credentials. No, go. Without hesitation, without diacrino, without judgment, without, you could say discernment, really. The thing that we're told to do, the Spirit said, you know my voice, I'm telling you to go, go. The Lord, numerous times in this book, has set up divine appointments for people to be saved. Have you noticed this? The Ethiopian is the, is the clearest example. He sends Philip down from Samaria. Go to the road. What part of the road? Just go to the road. I'll tell you where to go from there. You see that chariot? Overtake that chariot. While he gets there, he's reading the book of Isaiah. Are you, you understand what you're reading? He hops up in there and proclaims the gospel to him. At the last watering hole before the desert, he baptizes the guy. And then he's carried away miraculously to another city. That's a divine appointment. The Lord was setting all of this up in the spiritual world, and all Philip had to do was answer. Same thing with Saul. The Lord struck Saul with blindness, told him to go and wait. Then he goes to Ananias, go over to Saul. He's waiting for you. Ananias goes. He prays. He's filled with the Spirit, and Saul is saved. Same thing here. Cornelius is praying. The Lord sends an angel, sends some people to go pick up Peter. He gives Peter a vision, and then gives him a prompting from the Spirit and says, go now. The Lord is the one that arranges salvation. We don't always see this, but the Lord is constantly doing that. Our job is just to put in the last piece of the puzzle, to reap the harvest. You know, when you do something for your kid and you let them do the last piece, and they're like, look what I've done. It's like, yeah, look what you've done. That's so cute. <laughs> you know, you see this passage, and all these passages together, there's some amazing things happening in the Spirit. If we do not know the voice of the Lord, we will not be able to respond in these moments like Peter did. How would you know if God came to you and told you, leave and go down to the desert and, and I'm going to have you preach the gospel to somebody? Or these men that are here, I don't want you to even ask them where they're from. I just want you to go. Would you be able to hear the Lord in that, that moment? And I know we talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's so important here. Jesus said in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is there to speak to us, not just about doctrine, but Jesus Christ and God the Father are organizing all these things, and the way we know what our job is, is the Spirit speaks to us. The Holy Spirit speaks. Do you see that? Again, he has lines in this book. The Spirit said to Peter, if we are going to hold a theology and live our lives in a way that excludes the voice of the Lord, we're going to miss out on things. If we can't hear the still, small voice that Elijah heard. That's how I hear the Lord most of the time, just a still, small voice. And if I'm busy and noisy, I'm not going to hear him. But if you also, or maybe you're fine with that, but I don't know about that whole dreams and vision thing, that, that really freaks me out. There's a whole lot of Bible then that should be freaking you out. 
There's an awful lot of dreams and an awful lot of visions. And at the beginning of Acts, Peter spoke of what the Lord had said in Joel, that in the last days, well, everybody's going to be having dreams and visions. All my people, they're all going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even if you're going to exclude things like trances. And I, listen, I'm never going to come in here and host a trance class. <laughs> and here's how, we're going to have, how you have a trance in the Spirit. I, I'm, that's up to the Lord. But listen, if we're so resistant to things like that, then we're going to miss what the Lord does. I challenge you to read through the Bible and look at all the things that the Holy Spirit did to and through people. And your threshold for permissible is going to get pretty high. Have you read what happened to Saul when Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit? He stripped his clothes off. Yeah, everybody got real uncomfortable right there. <laughs> is he going to tell us? No, I'm not. I'm not going to tell you to do that. But Saul stripped his clothes off and prophesied. And these people, they said the Spirit would rush upon them and people would walk up to the prophets and they would just all of a sudden be filled with the Spirit and start to prophesy. The Lord spoke the things he said to Ezekiel. Lie on your side for a year and a half and don't get up. Don't mourn for your wife. Make a little bag and break out of your house every morning. What? You're telling me to do what? Yep. I want you to cut your hair off into three pieces and blow it away. If somebody came in here, let me ask you this. If we were having our prayer meeting and somebody got up, and I'm not going to pick on anybody in particular, and they cut off a length of their hair with their pocket knife, and they chopped it into three pieces, and they took one and they blew it away. They took the other one and they set it on fire. And the other one they left it there and said, thus says the Lord. What would you say to that? <laughs> that is 100% biblical. Am I saying that we should pursue weird? No, I'm saying that we need to not be so worried about being sophisticated and so afraid of what the Lord says that we can't hear his voice. We impoverish ourselves and we can even risk, run the risk of missing out on what God wants to do in somebody's life. When the Lord speaks, time is of the essence. Peter, you have no time to wait. Why didn't God tell Peter two days earlier and give him time to think it over? Because what did he need time to think it over for? God had already spoken. Get up and go, Peter. Peter had no time to waste. He knew the Lord's voice and that was enough. So here's the question. Do you know the Lord's voice? You need to. You need to learn his voice. And I'm not going to get into how you do that. We went through that a few weeks ago. But Christianity is not to be one big guessing game about what God wants. The Lord speaks. When you are faithful in prayer, and I could hammer that too. These people hear from the Lord doing what? Praying. Seeking the Lord, doing the regular everyday things faithfully. And then the Lord comes in with his heavenly instructions to get out there and reap the harvest. That's why we pray together, so that we're ready. We can hear from the Lord. And I can say that for us here, we are hearing from the Lord. And it's 1,000% biblical, which is super exciting. But Peter says he's going to go. So we get to verse 24. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. So remember, it's in about a day's journey again. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. No pressure, Peter. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. 
And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That's called an open door to share the gospel. So Peter arrives in Caesarea. Cornelius has gathered everybody that he cares about to hear. This is a little note, and I could preach just this. You never know what your contribution to somebody's life means. For Peter, this was... This is kind of a day at the office. That's what he did. He preached the gospel. But for Cornelius, this was the biggest moment of his life. He had brought all these people together. And we need to make sure, especially when we're serving the Lord, whether you're greeting at the door or you're doing PowerPoint or you're helping out with the kids, there's no usual normal day. You never know who's walking through that door. You never know who you're about to talk to. This could be their day. Very important. When Peter comes in, Cornelius tries to bow down to Peter. And maybe you could understand that because an angel said, go send for this man. He's an apostle and a prophet. And Cornelius, he grew up in, in Roman society. Those priests were somebody. You better bow down. And he bows down and Peter comes up and says, stand up. Hey, I'm just a man. I'm just a man. This is just like what Daniel said back when Nebuchadnezzar tried to honor him and do all these things. He said, I can't interpret anything. Joseph said that too, right? I can't interpret anything, but the Lord can. Taking the glory from the Lord is blasphemous, by the way. We're just reaping the harvest. And it's really unfortunate that there are men of God that have allowed themselves to be exalted and lifted up. And they expect people to do things like this for them. We deal with that in some of our mission, missionary work that we do. Because when you get out there and you're far away from any kind of accountability, sometimes these pastors, they, they start going for this kind of stuff. And they start saying, everybody has to give their property to me and bow down and kiss my feet before you come into the church and all kinds of crazy stuff. We don't do that. And he repeats the story again. He repeats of what the Lord said to him. And by the way, in these chapters, that story's going to be repeated a lot because it's that important. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, you should pay attention because it means something is important here. And Peter understands how significant this moment is in verse 28. You know that I shouldn't be here, guys. But I'm here because the Lord has brought me here. He reminds them that there were prohibitions against associating with Gentiles, going into their houses, eating at their tables. And these had become overinflated by this time. It had gone far beyond what the Lord intended in the Old Testament. It began when the Lord told Israel, when you go into the land of Canaan, drive the inhabitants out. Don't intermarry with them. Don't worship their gods. Don't go after their practices. You are to be my holy nation. That's only fair, right? That's, that's wise advice. Because Israel didn't do that. And they wound up doing all the same stuff that these people had done, up to and including child sacrifice. That's why, a little side note, people say, how could God tell Israel to drive these nations out? Do you know what these people were doing? Sacrificing their children on the altar and all other kinds of perversion and violence. And the Lord gave them hundreds of years to repent. And then when they got there, he said, do not be like these people. In Isaiah 52, 11, because Israel had not listened and had done all the things God told them not to do, he told them, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. He's like, you're supposed to be my light in the darkness and you're acting just like them. Get out of there. Stop that. He gave them the rules like the food laws to highlight the distinction. 
They were to be held up as an example to the whole world. But this grew up into resentment and pride. And where this really got started, y'all, was in between, in the, in the silent years, as we call them, the Maccabean period. Because Israel was brought back from Persia, and then Greece conquered them. And then they were tossed back and forth between these two Greek dynasties. Finally, they bust out and they rule themselves for about 100 years. Then Rome comes in and Rome beats them down. And the culture is starting to encroach on the Hebrew language and the way that they dressed. And now you have this national political thing getting tied up with the spiritual thing. And that is never a good mixture because they began to confuse the two. In fact, in the book of Jubilees, which is traditional Hebrew literature, it said, separate yourselves from the nations. Nations is Gentiles. Eat not with them. Do not according to their works. And do not become their associate. Had God told them to do that? No, but that was their tradition that they were enforcing. For their works are unclean, and all their ways are a pollution and an abomination and uncleanness. Years of occupation had turned the Jews inward. It's all about us and what we're doing and our thing, and God is going to set the rest of you on eternal hellfire, and we're going to have the whole world. And I think maybe that was Cornelius' deal. Maybe he had enough, in a, in a good sense, respectable pride to know, why would I want to be part of something that tells me all these things about myself? I believe that your God is real, but I don't believe this is from the, your God. I've read your scriptures, and that doesn't sound like your God. You've got all these rules that are not found in your scripture, so I need to not only learn the Bible, but I've got to learn your rules too. It puts people off, guys. I've said this before. We need to avoid making rules in the church if we can at all help it. Because if you are going to make a point of contention over something that is not 100% grounded in Scripture, you can drive people away. Well, they should be more mature. Actually, Paul said you should be more mature. You should be willing to put up with stuff like that, realizing that it all goes with the cross and the blood of Jesus, not this other silly little stuff. And in the same way, we're not to be so removed from the world that we have no salt and light influence on it anymore. That's another danger that we have. Oh, I just can't stand being around them and all these terrible things they do. Yeah, sure. Well, who's going to preach Jesus to them? We abandon the culture, and in a few generations we go, what happened? You know exactly what happened. Watch out for this stuff. It's a constant temptation, especially for Christian parents. I'm raising my hand. You don't want your kids to be like that. But there are souls that need to be saved, and there's maturity that needs to be brought to the church. And Peter was taking a risk coming here because of these rules. Not because of the scripture, because of the rules. Did God say, don't ever have dinner with a Gentile? He did not. Did God say, never associate with a Gentile? No. He said, do not intermarry with the Gentiles. Do not worship their gods. Do not follow their sexually immoral practices. You know, it would probably be better if we just never talked to them again. That's not good. <laughs> That's not what the Lord wanted. Well, Lord, we're just trying to make the boundaries a little stricter so that we don't accidentally go over. Then Jesus showed up, and Jesus went right over those boundaries, and they could not take it. You guys are taking the grain heads in the fields and you're rubbing them together and eating the, the seeds and you're throwing it away. You're harvesting on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, are you kidding me? This is harvesting? This right here is harvesting? Why don't you wash your hands before dinner? I did wash my hands. Yes, but you didn't do this ceremonial washing of the hands. He goes, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, you know that? You're teaching as commandments of God the traditions of men. We, we went through this in Luke, do you remember? That Jesus even made us uncomfortable sometimes. Like, Jesus, should you be going to that party? He went to that party, and he came out of it with the apostle Levi. And we're going to see this in the next chapter, that Peter is actually going to have to do a little splaining when he gets back to Jerusalem because of going to this guy's house.
And this is part of the reason why God had to speak so clearly to him, because this was a huge gap to get over. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Praise the Lord for that. Isn't that awesome? Because I'm, I'm not an Israelite. I'm not a Jew. I'm an American. And I know that sounds really great for us, but as concerns the old covenant means absolutely nothing. But the Lord shows no partiality. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news, evangelizomai, evangelizing, of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses, martyrs, of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses martyrs, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's a real concise gospel message right there. Whenever I take missions teams, I always have them learn how to give the gospel. And then I say, you have to give the gospel in five minutes. And we all go around and practice. And now you have to do it in one minute. Now you have to do it in 30 seconds. Now you have to do it in 10 seconds. Because sometimes that's all you got. Just 10 seconds. Get the gospel out there. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, forgiveness, grace through faith, all those stuff. You know what's great about this? Is Peter did not really know why he'd come. The Spirit didn't tell him. He said, just go with these men. He shows up and Cornelius says, oh, we're here to hear what you have to say. And what does Peter say? Well, the Lord didn't tell me what I was supposed to say. Yeah, he did. He told him in the Great Commission, go and preach the gospel. Hey, if you have a chance encounter with somebody in your life, if somebody that you didn't know that you'd be running into and all of a sudden you've been maybe thinking about them and praying about them and now you run into them somewhere, why did God bring us together? Default to preaching the gospel. Default back to the gospel. And if they're a Christian, default to asking them how you can pray for them. You've got to just have that instinct, that reaction. Wow, that was so strange that we ran into each other after 12 years. It might not be strange. It might be the Lord bringing them into your way, and he's looking for a Christian that's going to just preach the gospel. That was Peter's default. Well, God didn't give me anything specific, so let's run through the gospel. Let's just let's tell the story. He says that God shows no partiality. In Greek, he says, God is not a face receiver. It's a really long Greek word, but it comes from the word for face and the word for receive. As in, God doesn't check you out, look at your face and see if he likes it or not, and then let, let you in. Ah, you don't really look like you're one of us, are you? I don't think I can let you in. God doesn't do that. He does not judge people based on ethnic categories, by the status or the class, by any other material standard. Not in his church. That's not how it's going to be. And it might seem shocking when you read the Bible up to this point as the story of Israel. Now we're in this Gentile's house. God is not a receiver of faces. God does not show partiality. It really all started before that, though. The Jews should not have been that surprised because that was always God's goal, was the inclusion of the Gentiles. When the Lord first made the covenant with Israel in Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, this is another one of those pivot points in the Bible is the covenant being made between God and Israel. 
He said in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, nations, Gentiles, for all the earth is mine. That's the part they missed. You're going to be my special people, but it's all mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. A priest nation. What does a priest do? A priest speaks to the people for God and to God for the people. A priest is an intermediary. He wasn't saying, close yourself off and don't ever interact with these people. He said, you are to be the ones that bring them to God. Just as in the people of Israel, they had their priests. He said, you as a nation are going to be that for the rest of the world. It was always a plan to bring the rest of the world in. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, through you, all the nations, the Gentiles of the world shall be blessed. Isaiah 42, verse 6 said that the Messiah would be a light to the goyim, a light to the Gentiles. It was always about reaching outward, but they had missed that. And we can be that way too as a church, can't we? The church is to be outward facing. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Are there internal matters? Yeah. But if we can keep your face pointing outward, all of a sudden that stuff inside doesn't really matter so much. I don't really like the color of that carpet. I don't know if I can go to church here anymore. We laugh, but man, that happens. That exact thing has happened multiple times. You know, I just, I just, I'm just not feeling it here anymore. What are you talking about? What does that have to do with anything? You're supposed to be focusing outward. You come here, it's like halftime during a, a football game. You come in, you get some water, you stretch out a little bit, you take a breath, you go over the plan. Okay, here's what we're trying. It's not really working. We're going to run this instead of that. You go back out. And we've kind of made halftime the centerpiece of everything. That's not what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be outward, going out and bringing the gospel to people. Oh, man, I, and I said it a second ago. I'm going to say it again. If we can be focused outward on bringing souls to salvation, all the petty things that rip churches to pieces, they won't matter. Oh, this is not very, I don't really like the decorations in here. Oh, they don't really have this program. Oh, they don't really have this thing. Those are all concerns, and, and I care about those things. I'm the pastor. I'm trying to make it great. But you know what? If we're out there and we're bringing people here, we're going to be so excited about people coming to salvation and finding Jesus. We're going to be just hankering and panting to get into the prayer meeting because we want to encounter God one more time. Then we're not going to worry about that stuff. It's got to be outward, and it doesn't turn inward. And this is what the Lord was trying to tell Peter and tell the Jews. I never intended for you guys just to be inward focused. I intended you to be outward focused. I wanted you to bring salvation to the Edomites. I wanted you to bring salvation to the Ammonites and the Moabites. I wanted you to teach the Philistines to worship the true and living God. But they missed it. And that's what happened. But you know what? The Lord said, I am not going to let even my chosen people ruin this. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, born under the law, born as a Jew, to be a light to the Gentiles. And here we are. Most of us are Gentiles in here. You're worshiping the Jewish Messiah. You're reading the Jewish scriptures. And your 12 apostles are all Jewish men. You ever think that that might be weird? Because <laughs> it is kind of weird. We say words like hallelujah. That's Hebrew. It means praise Yah, praise Yahweh. That's a God from way on the other side of the world. What are we doing worshiping that God? Because the Lord is off it to draw everybody to himself. 
Paul will teach us as Gentiles in, in Romans chapter 11 especially. He basically says, now you Gentiles, don't get too big for your britches over there. He kind of says, you're just lucky to be here, guys. Because what had happened is the Jews had been expelled from the city of Rome, and they finally were brought back, but the church in Rome had been exclusively Gentiles for a long time. Now the Jews are coming back, and there's conflict between the two. And Paul spends a lot of time talking to the Jews about, guys, it's all about the Lord bringing us all together. But then he turns to the Gentiles and says, and as for you, you just be humble. You are lucky to be here. You've been brought in by grace with none of the external requirements that we Jews had to go through. You just be happy that God brought you in. It's an appropriate attitude, a bit of humility, right? And Peter brings the gospel to these Gentiles in their Roman home, telling them of the resurrection of Jesus, just as he had been charged to do. Romans 1.16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. I'm, I'm okay to be the end also in that. Well, I want to I be, be the top. I want to be number one. Well, that's a little late for that, don't you think? <laughs> Lord already chose Abraham. That's a long time ago. I was teasing my parents because they were in Israel for the last two weeks and they were texting me pictures and stuff. And they said, good morning from Israel. And I kept on saying, good morning from God's other country. <laughs> Because, you know, that's what we think about. It. That's how we talk about it. And even in our history, we're like, you know, we're really basically the new Israel now. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> and also to the Greek. And we're praying for the Lord to bring redemption back to Israel. And he will someday. But as Paul is going to explain in Galatians, the time for the law is over. Thank the Lord that the time for the law is over. This is the age of grace. Even to us idolatrous Gentiles. Who knows what your ancestors worshipped? But the Lord saw fit to get rid of all that and bring you back to Jesus, to the true and living God, taking us away from dumb idols. As best as I can tell, my ancestors worshiped trees. So thank you, Lord. Really appreciate that. It's embarrassing, isn't it? Well, what happens? He proclaims the gospel, runs through the whole story, how Jesus died and rose again. And in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. I wonder if any of them were speaking Hebrew. That would have been ironic, wouldn't it? Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. Peter doesn't even get a chance to finish his sermon. He doesn't even get to the altar call. Maybe he had somebody there ready to start playing just as I am without one please. Now, hold on, we're not there yet. And the Holy Spirit sent his power down on these people and they start speaking in tongues and praising the Lord. And it says that those among the circumcised, the Jews, are looking at this like, what is happening right now? It's like Pentecost all over again, except they didn't even get to the, now raise your hand if you'd like to receive Jesus, and we'll lay hands on you to receive the Spirit. The Lord does not need anybody to lay hands on anybody. It's biblical, and we do it, but it's the Lord's sovereign work here. And I think this is also a way of making sure that Peter didn't mess this up, or that Peter could explain it later and saying, what do you want me to do? The Lord poured the Spirit out on him. And they were speaking in tongues and singing praises to the Lord. It takes faith, not baptism, not keeping the law, nothing else. It's faith. And I may say, for us as a church, 
We have a very loose schedule that we run by. I try to start on time. I try to end on time. We have a more or less rough deadline that I try to hit when worship is over so that we make sure we have time for the teaching and everything like that. But the Holy Spirit has permission to interrupt anytime he wants. We will have days. I guarantee you, we will have days where we will stop the message short and we'll start to pray. We will have days where maybe we'll do worship at the end. Are you allowed to do that? Yes, of course you're allowed to do that. The Holy Spirit is the ruler here. He is Lord here. He can direct what's going on. And it's really funny that you can go to these things sometimes and they'll hand you the schedule. And it's all great. I love schedules. I'm very organized. I have too many to-do lists and all the rest of it, right? And they say, okay, so from 7 o'clock to 7.07, we're going to have prayer. And then from 7.08 to 7.25, we'll have worship. Then we'll have four minutes uh, for people to pray and we'll have one buffer minute and then you can pray for 38 minutes and then and then it's done and where's the holy spirit going to fit in there obviously he can nothing wrong with schedules but if you're so tied to that that when things just start to move if you're singing and we're having worship and you can just tell that this is where we need to be we should never be afraid to play a few extra songs if we're praying before the service and just it just becomes heavy on the room we can wait we'll have teaching next week And sometimes if you're teaching and the Lord is just moving, it's okay just to keep it going. And some guys want to use that as an excuse because they haven't prepared and they're going to teach for an extra 40 minutes. But the Holy Spirit has permission to interrupt. Because if we can't stop when he's ready, what are we doing? Do we come here to hear messages? I could email you the recording. And it would be much simpler and we wouldn't have to pay rent. (laughs) We're here to meet with God, aren't we? And maybe they were wondering as they were traveling, what, what do we do? If we preach the gospel and they want to become Christians, do we baptize them? Maybe we should talk to the other guys first. And maybe there's, they've got a couple Pharisees that had become Christians but hadn't quite gotten the message yet. You just know that we'll just pick on something. Maybe you know Judah. He's going to flip his lid if we bring those people in. What about the priests that have been saved? They're not going to be okay with that. Can we bring them to the church? We worship at the temple. Can we bring them into the temple? Are we allowed to do that? And the Lord answers that question for them by sending the Holy Spirit before they even got to that point. Peter can't refuse now, and he even stays with them. That last phrase in verse 48, that's not a throwaway. He stayed with them for a few days. He lodged in the house of a Gentile. And we're going to see the very next verse as Peter's showing back up, and there's some people who have some concerns that they'd like to address. Namely, you stayed at the house of a Gentile, Peter. It's a big deal. But it's a glorious day. We'll worry about all that later. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, would you? This is a long passage, and I want to make sure we all get to read it. Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11 and going down to verse 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross 
thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's a glorious passage of scripture. The Lord brought the two together. You were separated from all this. But Jesus broke down the wall of hostility by his blood. That's what the Lord does. That's the climax. This is the gospel expanding even to the Gentiles, bringing them into the family, just as God always planned. That's what the Lord does. He breaks down hostility. And we're going to talk about that next week, but I'll just mention it. How are we going to fix the the conflict between the Palestinians and and the Jews? It's going to have to be Jesus because there's no peace anywhere else. How are we going to fix the conflict between whatever other racial group, white and black, or between Mexicans and Americans? How are we going to fix the conflict between the Turkish and the Greeks? How are we going to fix the conflict between these Muslims and these Muslims? It's only Jesus that can do that. It's when we stop thinking in these categories and we start bringing ourselves together under one new body under Christ. That's where peace comes from. And that's what the Lord did with the greatest divide that there was. Jews and Gentiles. The dogs, as they called the Gentiles, and the children. But now we've all been made children of God. Israel is still God's chosen people. He still has promises and plans for them. He's still going to restore them to repentance. The nation of Israel brought the whole world to the knowledge of God through Jesus and through his apostles. We have not become them. This is some doctrine that we'll get into another time. We have not replaced them. Remember, we've been grafted in. We are lucky to be here is the best way to put that. We have been able to share in the blessings of their Messiah without becoming them. And how do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit was poured out on these Romans without any further ado. (laughs) There are no second-class citizens in God's church. We're all united by him, and that's cause for joy. The rest of the New Testament will be wrestling with the implications of this truth. We're going to see it in the book of Acts. We're going to see it in the book of Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Hebrews. And it's going to be sprinkled in in all the other books because they're trying to figure out how do we deal with this? Gentiles now. But right now, the Bible doesn't worry about it. It just rejoices in the fact that we've all been brought in. It's almost like the Lord says, you guys will figure it out. I'm not worried about it. We'll sort it all out. Because Colossians 3.11 says, Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Our job is to bring people to Jesus. Not to worry about the rest of that stuff. Well, you've got a whole lot of problems you've got to work through. No, you bring them to Jesus. You think Cornelius didn't have some problems he had to work through? You think that his friends and family, who maybe were only there to humor the old man, and now they've been filled with the Spirit and they've got stuff they've got to work out. He's part of the Roman legion. There's a temple to Caesar in this city. He would have had to go there and pay homage and burn incense to Caesar and declare that Caesar is Lord. There's going to be some consequences to this, but the Lord's like, we'll worry about that later. First thing, salvation. That's our job. Salvation comes first and you let the Holy Spirit do the work. Because isn't that all we're doing anyway? We're reaping the harvest. We can plant seeds. We can water seeds. But we don't make anything grow. The Lord does that. And sometimes the Spirit comes in and says, hey, it's ripe over there. Go and reap the harvest. 
It would have been a too small thing for God just to be another provincial deity. I'm God of the Jews, and Zeus is the God of the Greeks, and Thor is the God of the Norse, and they worship this God over here and that God there. That's too small a thing. But the Lord said, I'm going to do something big. I'm going to bring everybody into my salvation all over the world. Jesus Christ was only worthy of the redemption of everybody. Think of who Jesus is. You think he would be content? Does he deserve only to save a handful of Jews in one part of the world? No way. That gospel went out and transformed entire cultures. Ripped them up by the roots and replaced them with something different. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he's worthy of. And we stand here today as trophies of his love and his wisdom and his grace.